Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the powers of words alone, can shape laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away liberty from another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. Welcome to the first episode of Of Counsel. It's hard to imagine a better guest to start off this podcast on remarkable litigators than Gerald Chan. In just 10 years since his call in 2007, Gerald has proven himself as one of the most accomplished litigators in Canada and overall just a really great guy. His CV reads like a wild wish list of an ambitious law student who's had way too much coffee. Clerking at the Supreme Court of Canada, associate and then partner with criminal law titan Clayton Ruby, and now practicing as a partner with Stockwoods, one of the most prestigious litigation firms in Canada. Public law, criminal law, and regulatory law, you name it, Gerald's done it. Even hitting the highlights for Gerald is a real challenge of brevity. He's an accomplished editor and author. His most recent publication, Digital Evidence, a Practitioner's Handbook by Emmon Publishing, is already a massive hit among the bar and law school. This text that he's co-authored lays out all the essentials for lawyers needing to understand the rules of admissibility and use of digital evidence in Canada. As the world moves toward complete digitization, this text may very well be on every judge's bench and every lawyer's briefcase. Gerald is an editor of the Criminal Lawyers Association for the Defense, associate editor of the Canadian Rights Reporter, co-author of Sentencing, and often quoted in major media for his expertise on criminal law, privacy, and Supreme Court decisions. He's very active in legal education and access to justice initiatives. Adjunct professor at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law, where he acts as a field supervisor for the Appellate Criminal Litigation Externship. A member of the Ontario Inmate Appeal Duty Council Program, a roster of experienced criminal lawyers who argue pro bono appeals for inmates at the Court of Appeal. An active member of the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers, member of the Judicial Appointments Advisory Committee for the Ontario Court of Justice, and a frequent guest speaker at legal conferences throughout North America. And how is this for courtroom experience? Gerald has been to the Supreme Court of Canada for 19 cases. 19 cases! And this is not even including the time he spent clerking there for Justice Abella after graduating gold medalist at Osgood Law School. Those cases alone could be an entire season to a standalone podcast. All this comes with massive Bay Street credibility and recognition by his peers. Gerald is listed as one of the best lawyers in Canada for administrative and policy law litigation. Benchmark Litigation recognized him as a future star in 2017 and named him to his under 40 hot list. He is awarded the Osgood Alumni Gold Key in the One to Watch list and a Precedent Magazine Precedent Setter Award in 2012. It's a great pleasure to welcome Gerald Chan to our first episode of Of Counsel. I mean, I, I really stumbled into law. Um, I, I, I'd studied business in undergrad. It's, it's almost like this black hole period of my life where I don't remember anything I learned. I, I know I majored in accounting and found it dreadfully boring. Um, and, uh, you know, can't really tell you any principles that I picked up in those four years at all. But I think it was because uh, I was so disengaged in what I was doing in undergrad, I started looking elsewhere. And I'd always been interested sort of in, you know, philosophy and in... And, and, uh, uh, public speaking, debating, that sort of thing, but I'd never really been encouraged in that direction when I was growing up as right. a kid, so it was never fully on my radar until I just didn't know what else to do. Uh, <laughs> and so I think I think I took a course called Modes of Reasoning in undergrad and really enjoyed it and thought, you know, maybe I should start thinking more seriously at least about applying to law school. Right. So like looking at all of the things that you've done, you've got this long list of um, civil liberties, um, um, interests, and certainly litigation. And it sounds like you just, that didn't cross your mind at all in undergrad. No, not, not at all. I mean, even when I got into law school, because I, I studied business in undergrad, I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll be a corporate transactional lawyer, you know, mm -hmm. do deals, whatever that means. I don't really, I didn't really know what that meant. 
Um, and then I did my first moot in law school and really enjoyed it and thought, okay, maybe I can actually handle this litigation thing because I hadn't actually done much public speaking or debating. So I was, I was pretty I think, insecure at that point about whether this was something I could do well at. Right. But then you, you did this moot and you figured, hey, this is, and did, at that point, did you think, okay, litigation is what I need to do? Did you have the fix at that point? That I, yeah. Pr I think I caught the litigation bug pretty early on in law school. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but even then it was, OK, well, I'll go and be a commercial litigator because I was still sort of wedded to this uh, notion of being a big firm corporate lawyer, given my business background. And so I, I went off to uh, Goodman's for a couple of summers and uh, actually practiced there for a year after after I clerked. Right. Uh, trying my hand at, at commercial litigation. But I guess one thing you would have seen clerking at the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, it was with Justice Sabella, was it not? Sure. Yeah, it was yeah. with Justice Sabella. And during that, it must have been pretty awesome to watch these litigators come forward and argue law that's shaping the the nation in front of you. Oh, it was, it was I mean, it, it was such a spectacular year for that. I mean, I, I made sure to go to every single hearing, whether I was working on the case or not, right. um, especially when it was a big name lawyer coming up because I was really fascinated by the whole advocacy process and I really wanted to see you know all these great lawyers in action so that was to get a front row seat to that and then to get sort of the judicial perspective and talking to my judge afterwards on what, how she uh, you know took the arguments what she thought of different things the lawyers did it was a great learning experience um, and it was also that year that I sort of caught the criminal law bug yeah. because a, there are a lot of you know I mean, as everyone knows the Supreme Court's docket is heavily criminal and constitutional charter uh, of rights law and so uh, the most interesting cases to me that year were all the criminal procedure cases I think we had the sniffer dogs appeals that year we had the the roadblock case Clayton Farmer right uh, a few other uh, really interesting criminal law cases and so I came out of that year thinking you know I'm criminal <laughs> criminal litigation maybe have maybe something I had to think more seriously about even sure. though I was committed to go back to to the commercial litigation practice that I summered was there a point when you're watching you know these legends of litigation right I mean they're coming before the Supreme Court and these people are at the top of their game arguing the most important law is there any one in particular that just stood out where you think this is amazing like the, the the skills that are being applied here do you remember any one that just seems to have really set you on this path um probably ben zarnett who actually was a he's a commercial litigator at goodman's mm -hmm. who i worked a little bit with when i summered there before um i he argued a case during my clerkship year that i made sure to watch uh, both because I knew of his reputation uh, from being at the firm uh, as a summer student and I had seen him argue one of the cases uh, when I was a summer student as well and he he really stood out to me not there was no flash or pizzazz you know like if you didn't really know what the case was about you might you know find it a little bit boring um, but he was just so methodical and so if you knew what the issues in the case were about he was so clear Every answer was was given in this with this completely unflappable manner. It was it would it, it just sounded like, and I'm sure he actually did think through every single question and how to answer every single question ahead of time, so that nothing threw him off and and uh, there were no surprises. And every question was answered in a way that not just answered the question but brought it back to sort of the central theme of the argument so there was this theme that kept coming back out right and so you know watching i've watched a bit of of you arguing um at the supreme court of canada it seems like you've emulated a lot of that style for yourself where um a rather understated yet overly prepared approach and being prepared for these quick turns and questions of the justices would you say that he's someone that you've tried to emulate over the years and if so what are some of the other uh, lawyers that have influenced you in your advocacy style yeah no i mean uh, ben definitely someone i've tried to emulate over the years um this is going to get really law nerdy but one of the, <laughs> the lawyers that i listen to a lot is an american lawyer okay. uh, named seth waxman who's a sort of a, a u.s supreme court specialist down there he's a big firm litigator but does a lot of criminal cases as well he argued uh uh, struck down the death penalty for for uh, those who are mentally ill and uh, those who are under 18 in a big Supreme Court case. Um, uh, argued Boumediene versus Bush, the big habeas corpus case dealing with Guantanamo. So he deals with a lot of cases of interest to me. But the U.S. Supreme Court, they don't unlike our Supreme Court, they don't have videos on online because they don't have cameras in the courtroom. But they right. release audios. So I remember my clerkship year, I would 
download all these MP3 audios and just listen to them on my drive back and forth from Toronto to Ottawa. And, and you know, what struck me about his advocacy was similar to what I described about Ben's. I mean, every, answer, every question, and they ask a ton of questions south of the border, much more than our Supreme Court does. Every question was answered with complete cool, but always in a way that tied back to a bigger theme. And it, you know, this, I sort of think about the, the tennis analogy where you're not, you know, there are some people who just miss the ball entirely. Like some people just miss the question. Right. Some people hit the ball back who answer the question. But then the really good players hit the ball back in a way that sets up the next shot and, and wins the point. So that's right. sort of what I at least try to do um, when I'm preparing for an oral, oral argument. So what's interesting, you know, you tell me this is you hear when, when we speak to a lot of lawyers, they'll say, you know, I knew right from the beginning I used to watch uh, Perry Mason or I used to this particular movie influenced me. And, you know, even here, like, you know, legends like the late Eddie Greenspan, he knew from day one, it seems that he was going to be a lawyer. But what's interesting, the way you describe this is that it seems as though your uh, heroes of litigation, so to speak, were shaped within law school. And even now, it seems like you still that that passion is is being formed day to day. That's right. No, I, 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 this was not something where, you know, I, I knew as a, a kid that I wanted to be a trial lawyer growing up or a litigator. It's, I, I stumbled into it during law school and, and then, you know, with each successive experience since law school, found something new to get excited about, like during my clerkship year and then, and then after I joined the criminal bar. And I'm sure there are, there are so many that we could touch upon, but leaving law aside, um, are there any people in particular in your life that um, you've come across or watched uh, outside law that have been a real influence in your litigation and your career? Um, not, not in my personal life necessarily. Right. Um, I mean, in terms of public figures outside of law, uh, I'm sure many people would say this, but, but you know, uh, President Barack Obama is someone who's just his way of explaining a point and engaging an audience, whether it's a, a speech in front of a large crowd uh, or sort of a, a more you know, informal one-to-one -one type conversation. He just always projects cool, he always projects calm, he always projects extreme thoughtfulness, right. where, where you know, you're not wasting words and you're not saying things just to fill the space, uh, but every sentence every thought is very carefully considered and so that's you know a, a type of communication that I think I've tried to uh, copy whether it's you know in conversations uh, with opposing counsel over the phone at a JPT right. in court uh, in front of a judge uh, at the trial level on the appellate you know at the appellate stage uh, I think that's sort of um, manner of communication is very effective no matter what your audience is. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult balance at times, I find, in the sense that you have to be very cogent in what you're saying, but you also have to be very thoughtful, as you say. And when you listen to someone like Barack Obama, um, it comes across so natural, but you know every word, every syllable is so perfectly chosen. And um, do you find when you're getting into these modes, whether it's you know, having a conversation over phone, like you say, with a judicial pretrial um, or litigating itself, do you find your mind goes into a different mode? Do you find that like your perspective of the world almost goes into litigation tunnel mode, tunnel vision? Yeah, and, and I think you have to, I think there's, when I first started, and, and I mean, I haven't been at it for that long, so even still now, there is a, there's a tendency for me to get into a different mode in, in an unhelpful sense, I think, and sort of, well, I'm here to advocate for this particular position, I'm, I'm on one side of the argument, I'm just gonna push this as hard as I can. Whereas I think a much more effective advocacy technique that I try to remind myself to do is try to put yourself in the position of really being a friend to the, to the judge, to the court. And you're there to help them solve a problem. So you're not just putting up one side and then the other person puts up the other side and the judge has to figure out what the right answer is somewhere in between. But you're really taking on the problem and trying to be a problem solver with the judge together. And I think to project that sort of uh, demeanor can be very effective. Yeah, I think that's very insightful. So essentially what you're describing is you're, you're becoming an ally to the court uh, rather than the adversary of the crown or your opposing party because uh, I guess in creating that um, ally, it's almost like you're ganging up on your opposing party. That's right. Well, and, and I, I, you know, to talk about, you know, uh, famous lawyers uh, who have been an inspiration, I saw Marie Hennon do this very effectively 
Um, the first time I was ever in the Court of Appeal, she was on for a co-appellant. And I remember, I don't remember the question, but she was asked a pretty difficult question by Justice Doherty. And her, her way of responding was to say, you know, that's, uh, to acknowledge that this was a difficult question and to acknowledge that she struggled with what the answer should be to this question and then to explain why, you know, the question wasn't fatal to her case and here's a way around it. But just that initial way of saying, that's a hard question and I've struggled with it, I think naturally gains the trust of the court rather than saying, well, you know, there's nothing to that. But let's be fair here to, you know, the young lawyers or recent calls listening to this. That's a very difficult skill to achieve. Yes. Um, right. And it's something um, I imagine even to this day, it's still the mastery of that to reach like the level of someone like Marie Hennon takes a whole career to unfold. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you, you need a lot. You need a you need a lot of confidence in your judgment and a lot of comfort uh, in those types of situations, which only comes with a lot of experience, I think. But let's let's take that um, uh, to a point where if you're giving advice to a young lawyer who wants to be able to react, and you know, they're, they're, let's face it, as, as a recent call, you're not going to be able to react in the same way someone who's been doing it for 20 years. But if you were coming into it, right, and you were trying to train a recent call to say, these are the sorts of pitfalls that are coming towards you as an advocate, and this is where, you know, Justice Doherty or another very cerebral judge might ask you a question, what would your advice be to them in preparation of these essentially litigation unknowns? I mean, I think you just, you've, you've got to just do as much work as you can at the front end to to minimize the number of unknowns you're going to be met with when you're in that situation. Um, you know, whether it's, it's thinking through uh, all the different types of questions and challenging questions you can get that are going to be put to you at the Court of Appeal or whether it's thinking through the different ways that a witness is going to try to weasel out of a particular line of questioning right. uh, at trial. Um, you know, it, it's trite and everyone always says preparation, 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 but uh, that is a big part of it. And, you know, beyond that, I, it, at some point you just have to learn by doing. Uh, right. and, and it's, you know, that may not be super helpful advice to a young lawyer at the front end, but there's only so much I think you can prepare for this in your office. Well, what strikes me in, in your answer uh, to this is um, you, the way you describe it, it doesn't seem like you're, you're shying away from the bad things that are going to happen. And I mean, what you're um, saying, it seems as though that there's this um, acknowledgement that no matter what you do, no matter how much you pray, you're going to have a lot of these bad things. So you better just embrace it from the beginning in that preparation. That's right. And, and, and embrace it. And if there's a bad fact, you, you know, embrace it, contextualize it and do your best to, to explain why it doesn't, uh, it's not fatal to your case. Right. And, and then even beyond, you know, you're right, no matter how much you prepare, there are going to be things in litigation in the courtroom that catch you off guard. I mean, that's the nature of our business, especially at trial right. with witnesses. Um, and so, you know, I think you've got to, knowing that that's going to happen, and I find it actually, when I was uh, a really young lawyer, and even now, I find it really reassuring to hear senior members of the bar tell me stories of times where they were caught off guard by things because it almost gives you this comfort level that look it just happens i i, mean, I think the first few times it happened to me i sort of freaked out and said oh my god like what could i i didn't prepare enough or i'm a failure this is a complete disaster i've lost the case and you tend to overreact a lot i think as a as a young lawyer because you're so nervous in that in that moment and you haven't encountered it before okay so let me ask you i hope what is an easier question about kind of the crutches we use for litigation, some of the fallback points. And the easiest thing is, what is sort of Gerald Chan's essentials in your briefcase? What is something that you just can't go to court without, whether it's a lucky charm or a favorite pen or whatever it is, computer? What is something you need every day? Definitely the criminal code. <laughs> I forgot the criminal code when I wrote my bar exam, which was a bad idea. There are a, <laughs> bunch, there are a bunch of questions that just said, you know, is section so-and-so, and, -so and it, does that create a hybrid or, or a, a summary conviction event? It's like, I, I don't have my code here. I can't look it up. Maybe it was just like a subconscious uh, challenge to yourself. You're thinking, you know what? I got yeah, this. <laughs> it, it didn't go so well. So uh, luckily the bar exam not that, not, doesn't have a high failure rate. Um, but definitely the criminal code. I, ha I have a court, I have sort of a, uh, uh, orange leather court binder that mm -hmm. I, you know, completely, um, uh, uh, copied off of clay. Uh, when I, so I worked for clay for, for Clayton Ruby for many years, um, as his associate and then partner. And he always went to court with the same, 
you know, a four ring orange leather binder that had his initials on it. He would take it out of his briefcase, open it up, and there were his notes. And that just looks kind of cool. He said, well, I'll get you one if you, if you want your own. And so, um, and it's funny, I was in court, I was actually in the Supreme Court of Canada interviewing in Harcourt, the security certificates case. A number of lawyers in court that day had worked with Clay over the years. Priest Davies was there, Marlis Edward was there, I'm pretty sure there was at least one other. And everyone had the same orange leather binder that, uh, that I brought into court because I stole the idea off of Clay. So it's, that's become sort of a you know, sentimental piece that I always... So what you're saying is if you can get that orange binder, you're in the Supreme Court account. It's that easy. You just got to buy whatever it is. And... Well, it, you know, <laughs> it, it may well be. Yeah. <laughs> But you know, I, I've 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 embraced technology in all other aspects of my life, but I've still not never made submissions or examined a witness off just an iPad or a laptop. So I always have my orange, uh, you know, leather binder. But you know, it's interesting because um, there's obviously uh, a real value to that, and I think what maybe is the implied message to that is great litigators in many different ways kind of look at the problems in similar ways. And for you, uh, obviously being um, around legends like Clayton Ruby, um, having that type of mentorship must have been really uh, meaningful upon your life and, and going about your litigation. And what are some of the other lessons that you just, these kind of seamless at the time, meaningless things, but that you've carried on uh, throughout your litigation career? Um, I mean, Clay was a fantastic mentor for, for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, you know, one, he would throw you into the deep end and there really was this learning by doing approach with him, you know, where, you know, look, say, look I'm here to, to, to answer questions if you have any, but work the case up. Let me know when we're going to court and we'll go argue together. And for every case I ever litigated with Clay, the witnesses were split up, the oral argument was split up, even when we were in the Supreme Court of Canada. So I was in the Supreme Court with Clay about I think less than a year into my uh, uh, first year as a criminal lawyer, and I mustered up the courage to ask him one day over lunch, you know, could I maybe argue a little bit of this in court? And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, well, what, you're not just gonna sit there the whole time. <laughs> you're taking ground number one, and I'll take ground number two, and we'll go have a good time. And so right. there was a lot of trust that he, that he placed in me and in all the lawyers he worked with that I think was very beneficial. Right, and you know, I. I guess what I, in reading some of the researching a little bit about your, your past, did, do I have it right that you were in the Court of Appeal at 28 years old? Yeah, that was the, it was the first, uh, first time I argued in the Court of Appeal. Because that's crazy. I mean, that is, um, at 28 years old, you're here before the Court of Appeal. I mean, talk about an intimidation factor. It's only, what, three years before you would have been in law school? Four well, years yeah, before? That, that, that was the most nervous I've ever been for any argument because it's funny. You, you sort of get comfortable with what you know. So because I clerked at the Supreme Court, the first time I was in the Supreme Court of Canada, I was, was actually before that case, and I was not anywhere near as nervous as I was for my first argument in the Court of Appeal. In the Court of Appeal, I was terrified because I just I, I had, didn't have the familiarity. It was this, uh, a horrible uh, homicide case we were taking up on appeal, and uh, Justice Doherty was the president of the panel, and, and so I was, I was as intimidated, I think, as you can be before standing up on your feet to make the argument. Right, and for so our listeners, just to put that into context, Justice Doherty is essentially one of the, the most... Uh, experienced and senior justices of the court of appeal and uh perhaps strikes fear at times in the in the ears of a litigator going before well, and i was arguing a fresh evidence application and i think you know half the cases that i had cited in in the factum were written by justice Tory. so <laughs> that's all that's all that's always a an extra factor that throws a little bit more intimidation into you when you stand so how do you get over that you know here you are you know 20 years old going to the court of appeal terrified how do you overcome that fear and do what you need to do as a lawyer? I think you just got to do it. And, and you know, there, there's one experience. I know you're, I think you're going to get into this at some point. But um, I, had, I had this one experience that I think really helped me develop a thick skin and, and deal with these types of situations. And it's sort of a, a, a bizarre set of experiences. But I spent a lot of my time uh, in undergrad, it's probably why I didn't learn anything about accounting, uh, in underground rap battles. <laughs> so uh, where getting booed off the stage was not unusual. Right. So I think having been booed off the stage um, pretty vociferously, uh, you, you sort of learn to just 
you know, suck it up and, right. and get through those situations and get back up there uh, and try to perform and, and do your best. So, so what are you more nervous at the rap battle or Justice Doherty? Well, <laughs> definitely Justice Doherty. Definitely Justice Doherty. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, 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 I can escape from the rap scene never to be seen again, <laughs> but I, I, I'm not sure I want to switch legal career, switch right. careers at this point. Change your name right. and yeah. different alias. That's right. The <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, you know, on that topic, though, just that I think a lot of people looking at appeal litigation might see it as a rather stagnant thing from the outside. Here's two people, you know, a justice asking questions and a lawyer answering and thinking that that's it and um you know i I personally don't do appeals myself but in watching some of the exchange that's going on uh, it seems as though there's a lot more that's happening that's almost unspoken and you know i want to actually point uh to a particular uh you know you've argued a lot of um, really amazing cases i'll just list some of them um you've argued um uh, fearon which relates to um the privacy uh interests of a person's cell phone search incident to arrest um, we can talk a little bit about that, but some other great cases are Vu and Cole and, and really a, a, a huge plethora relating to search and seizure and um, privacy rights within Canada. But but one that uh, happened quite recently uh, was uh, Marika. Am I saying that right? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not even, I was on for an interview, so I'm not <laughs> even sure how to pronounce the, the name of the case. All right. So I'll say Marika, Marika. Uh, and this relates specifically to uh, the interception or more specifically the retrieval in Jones of text messages once they've been saved uh, on a provider. So, for example, the police are getting a production order to get text messages uh, from Rogers, let's say, for example. Right. Was it Rogers in this case? I think it was Tellus in this case. Tellus, okay. And anyway, long way of saying, when I was watching you argue uh, in the Supreme Court of Canada, there's this really, um, there's a few interesting things that are happening. And one um, that happens right from the outset, and, uh, you know, if anyone wanted to look at these um, cases being argued, I encourage you to do that. In particular, um, you can go to um, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada uh, website, and you can access it there. Uh, in Canada, everything is um, recorded, like you're saying, like the U.S., where it's just audio. And you can watch some of these exchanges. And in uh, America, you were acting for Jones in that case? Uh, no. So so America and Jones were two companion appeals that were heard together. Okay. And I was counsel to the BC Civil Liberties Association, which intervened in both appeals. Uh, and so I made submission. They ended up combining the uh, two cases into one hearing. And so I made submissions on on uh, uh, America and Jones at the same time. I see. And if we look, I mean, it's a long, it's something like four hours in total. But if you go to approximately the two hour mark, I think specifically at two hours, two minutes, 30 seconds is what I have. And uh, that's at uh, cpac.ca under the archives. And what jumps out uh, when you start arguing is how quickly you focus in on your particular issue. Is there a reason that you just kind of narrowed it to kind of one discrete issue rather than jumping into a lot of the other issues that were at play here? Yeah, I mean, I think that was definitely deliberate um, and done pretty uh, self-consciously. You know, as an intervener, you, you have typically, nowadays it's five minutes. In this case, we had 10 minutes to make submissions. Um, a lot of the counsel for the appellants had already made their submissions, a couple of interveners had gone before me, and so I want to I want to add value, I don't want to just repeat what everyone else has said, I want to focus in on an area where maybe the other counsel haven't been able to assist the court as much because of their time constraints. And did you know when, uh, you know, you, when you're framing these arguments, did you know what the other people would be saying in oral argument and having to adapt to that, or, or was this something that you know, if I framed it into this one issue, I know I'm the only going to be person being arguing this right now. It's a bit of both. I mean, we, we definitely try to talk beforehand and did talk beforehand in this case on who was going to focus on what areas. So I have a general idea of the area I'm going to focus on. And so I've prepared submissions for that general area. But definitely as an intervener or, or any time I'm, I'm sort of going not up first on my feet, um, I try to take in as many of the questions as I can and where I think a question could be, uh, an answer could be clarified or I could give maybe a slightly different answer and add some value to the case, I will start off by, by trying to pick up the questions that have been asked before I got up on my feet, answering them to the best that I can, and then uh, fo- hopefully using that as a segue into the area that I want to talk about. 
And we're not, you know, for the purpose of the podcast, we're not going to play the whole uh, submissions, even though it's only 10 minutes long. I encourage people to do that. But when you start off arguing um, as an intervener, uh, it seems, you know, as I said, you just kind of put right forward the, the point and, and get into it. And, uh, you know, is that something where it, that was deliberate in the sense that you just wanted to focus on that? I think we've heard people describe it as point first advocacy. Right. Um, can you tell our listeners, like, what is that and do you believe in that approach? Yeah, I, I mean, point first advocacy, whether it's written advocacy or oral advocacy, I think is is so much more persuasive. And it's 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 pretty simple. You just, you, t- you, the, you know, as listeners, we take in information a lot better when we know where where it's going rather than sort of taking it in as a mystery novel where you know the ending is is to be determined and we slowly figure it out um, and so anytime I in any oral argument whether it's a trial court or appellate court I try to state up front this is this is the issue this is that I'm focusing on and this is the conclusion that I, I want the court to reach now let me tell you how we can get there um, and I try to especially when I only have 10 minutes in the Supreme Court of Canada hit that as as quickly as I can, and that's a lesson that Frank Adario, you know, would, has repeated to me a number of times when I worked with him uh, earlier on in my career, which is don't waste time, get right to it, and be as punchy and forceful as you can. And this, you know, even especially relative to your call, you've been to the Supreme Court a lot. I think now, what are we at? Nineteen times. Nine, Nineteen cases. A few of those cases were heard together in, this, in a single hearing. So. Still, wow, that's that's amazing. And how is how is your advocacy different now than when you were first there, or even in your second or third case? How do you look back and say this is some of the wisdom I've gained at the Supreme Court of Canada? I, th- I think it definitely get down to the point faster than than I than I originally did. There was a lot more of a wind up yes. when I when I first started, right. um, which I think you know in hindsight was. Uh, a bit of a time waster and and you know the the judges you know this is to to the advocate this is always the most important thing you have going but you know to the judges even at the Supreme Court of Canada they've got a huge caseload a lot of lawyers in front of them and so I think they really do appreciate it when you just get right to the point say this is the one issue I'm going to focus on and and uh, and here's what I have to say about it without too much uh, dancing around right because um, from the outside you know again looking at it you know if if, if the public to, were to watch what's happening on the screen screen in Supreme Court of Canada or even come watch the case I think there it would be easy to fall into the idea that these lawyers are in real time arguing these issues and persuading these judges and and certainly there's a degree of that and uh, but how much do you think is really happening? Because, uh, you know, what the public may not know is hundreds, thousands of pages of, of legal argument have already been submitted. And, you know, I've heard some lawyers put it between 10 to 20 percent can be moved. Uh, what, where do you think the, the threshold is? How much can you persuade a judge? I, I think that's probably right. I mean, I, uh, definitely on appeal, I think written advocacy is more important because that's the first time they, they pick up something and, and uh, take in your position. Um, and then they've got time to read it over and think about the case. It's sort of your first chance to grab them. And you know, once if, if you've uh, managed to grab them and bring them on side, then it'll be harder for the other side to steer them off course during the hearing and vice versa. So um, I think there's no question that written advocacy is more important. That said, you know, these are, especially at the Supreme Court of Canada, but at other levels of court too, these are complicated issues. And so a lot of times you need that back and forth uh, for the jurors to really, I think, focus their minds on, on where this is going and reach a definitive uh, position. And so I, fi- I mean, uh, you know, I, I love oral argument just for the art of the advocacy and the fun of it, uh, but I do think it makes, it makes a big difference. But I think it, it can only make a difference if you get up there ready to engage and ready to answer questions and engage in a back and forth and not get up there with a prepared set of remarks that you're going to stick to. Because if you're just doing the latter, that's no different than what you've done in your factum. It doesn't really add value to the process. And do you see, you know, when you walk into whether it's the Court of Appeal or Supreme Court of Canada, you must have no sense of where judges are sitting on your argument that you've filed now, right? You've, you've spent all this time, you've submitted the, your factum, 
And when you walk in, are you trying to get a sense from the judges? Where do they sit? Are they aligned? Do you have allies? Do you have enemies? Not enemies, but you know what I mean? Adversaries in the sense of your, against your argument. Are you able to assess that? And you get some sense of it for sure, because this, it, it, this is the first time you're getting feedback from the other side on what's troubling them. What issues are they thinking about? Um, you know, it's, it's still difficult at the end of the day to figure out where they're going to land based on their questions. You know, some right. judges will just ask questions to test the argument. They may not necessarily be on your side uh, just because they're, at, they're pummeling the other side. Um, they may just want to refine their position and, and, and figure out what the, what the uh, logical extremes of a position are. So I think it's, it's, it's dangerous to draw too much from it, but it is helpful once the questions start coming to try to adapt your submissions to those questions because they're telling you what they're concerned about presumably they're giving you a chance to deal with the things that bother them the most rather than just repeating what's in your so that you know i guess whatever we characterize it 10 to 20 percent um when they ask questions or is that sort of where they're they're tipping their hand as to where that 10 to 20 percent might lie and where your argument might be focused i, th I think so i think uh you know that certainly you know, if you listen to the U.S. Supreme Court arguments, their, their questions are, are much more like conclusions where the judges are just arguing with each other almost through the lawyer. Whereas I, I really, our Supreme Court doesn't really ask questions in that manner. I think they are genuinely asking questions that they need answers to to help them work through these problems. Um, and they need counsel's help uh, in trying to figure out what's the best way to deal with you know, just to give an example, a, a negative consequence that the Crown is, is citing will follow from defense counsel submissions. You know, the sky will fall, law enforcement won't be able to do their job, and the you know, judge puts to, that to defense counsel, well, how, you know, what, how is this actually going to play out on the ground, your position? And so if you are able to address their concerns, it can, it can give them more comfort and help them decide in your favor. Now, listening, you know, you, you may go first, you may go last, you may go somewhere in between. But as you're listening to these arguments unfold uh, before you with the Court of Appeal um, or Supreme Court of Canada, uh, and you start to see, for example, uh, a little bit of a weakness in, in your opposing party's argument that's drawn out by a justice, how do you quickly adapt to that? Even though you've already perhaps have a very focused argument, is that something that you're going to take an opportunity uh, or are you going to stick with your focused argument and hope that they just sort of peter out on their own? No, I, th I think you definitely have to adapt. I, I tend to look more for areas where the bench seems to be troubled by our side's positions um, rather than areas where I think we're already strong in because I really want to – I hate leaving – uh, concerns on the table that that haven't been addressed right. so you know typically in the Supreme Court I'm uh, supporting the appellant's position the defense bar typically is appealing rather than responding uh, and so the appellant uh, if I'm on for an intervener for example the appellant will have counsel will have been on his or her feet for uh, the first hour and from that during that hour I'll have a pretty good sense of what are the trouble spots what are the areas where the appellant really needs to uh, satisfy the court. A lot of times, appellant's counsel has done a great job doing it, but there may be a couple of questions that haven't been fully addressed that I can try to pick up uh, now that I'm on my feet. And I've also had the additional benefit of hearing the question and not having to answer right away. I've heard the question, I can readjust my submissions while I'm sitting at counsel table, and when it's my turn to get up, I can try to answer them to the best I get, that I well, can. It's interesting you say that because, you know, when we sort of were talking a little bit earlier, you were indicating that, you know, watching uh, Marie Hennon, for example, deal with these problems head on. And uh, it, it's um, interesting to hear that rather than jump on and pile on your op opposing party, you still need to address those questions. It's not like you can just leave them and hope they somehow forget about them. Yeah, no, and that's, I think that's, that's you, you have to do that because, Otherwise, those questions will come back, and and uh, that'll be the reason you've you've uh, your side has has lost the case, and you won't you'll have missed the opportunity to try to persuade the court away from. So I I want to just move into uh, a very like I want to actually show or have a, the re, uh, listeners uh, listen to a, an engagement that happens between you and Justice Rowe uh, in the Supreme Court, and I want to know what's sort of going through your mind here. Acquire, however does not suggest that sort of temporal limitation. You can only acquire that which already exists. And you can get an authorization to acquire something before it exists, 
or you can get an authorization to acquire something after it exists. And so the distinction between prospective and retrospective authorizations Just in our respect Just speaking, you yes. can acquire something at the moments of, of its creation as well. Yes. Which is what happens when you're listening to somebody. The, 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 the conversation is, being, is occurring at the moment, so you're acquiring it at the moment. It yes. doesn't need to be either before or after. It can be contemporaneous as well. That, that, that's quite correct. It can be. My only point is that acquire is broader than that. It's not limited to contemporaneous acquisitions. Yes, it can be contemporaneous, such as when you listen or record, but there has to be a reason that Parliament added that third prong in the definition of intercept and didn't just limit it to listening and recording. And there also has to be a reason that Parliament did not include a, an explicit contemporaneous requirement in the scheme of Part 6. So what we hear from that, I mean, that, that's a pretty incredible exchange because uh, here I'm listening to you and I, the first time hearing it, I'm thinking, of course, I mean, the statute is so clear. It says what it says. And I mean, let's be honest about this. Justice Rowe kind of really asks a really difficult question for you because technically what he's putting to you does make sense as well. And what's going through your mind there? Like, uh, how is it that you were able to stay on your game and not get thrown off by something like that? Is something you, is that a question you anticipated or is it something that you were just able to roll with it based upon your, your experience? Yeah, I know I hadn't anticipated that question at all. <laughs> and I also, I also wasn't quite sure where Justice Rowe was going with it as he was asking the question. I mean, I, I think I had a pretty clear idea of, of, of the theory of the case I wanted to put forward. I mean, our, our interpretation of, of part six of the criminal code was that it should apply whether the police are going to the court to ask for permission to seize text messages the day before the text messages come into existence or whether they go to the court the day after. It shouldn't matter when they go to the court. And I was falling back on the definition of intercept in the criminal code, which has three components, the third component of which is the word acquire, which to me uh, is pretty broad and, and doesn't require that you're, you're seizing the communication as it's being created. Acquire suggests to me that you're seizing something that already is there. Um, and Justice Rowe, I think, asked what I'd sort of now understand as more of an observational question. I think I had maybe overstated the point a little bit when I tried to say, well, acquire only applies, you can only acquire that which already exists. So Justice Rowe sort of brought me back a little bit to say, well, no, you, you, when you're listening to something and you're recording it, you're doing it contemporaneously, but that's also acquiring. You can also acquire something as it's being created. Um, and he was, he was right about that. And so that became clear to me as he was asking the question. So I think my first instinct is, well, okay, concede that he's, that he's right in making that observation. Now explain why that doesn't matter and doesn't hurt my argument because at the end of the day, the definition of intercept includes listen to, record, and acquire. Yes, listening to and recording um, uh, can be, suggest that it's a contemporaneous seizure. Yes, acquire can also suggest that it's a contemporaneous seizure, but my point is that acquire is a much broader term, and Parliament, you know, they don't just put words in the statutes for no reason. If they're putting a term in there that is as broad as the term acquire is, or, you know, uh, so the, the term is, uh, certainly is, is uh, understood fairly broadly to a layperson, I think. Um, then there has to be a reason for that. And so I think, um, to the best that I could anyways, I tried to concede what I should concede, but go back to the central theme of my argument and explain why, even with that concession, uh, it doesn't affect what I'm ultimately arguing to the court. Right. And so just, you know, for our listeners' sake who may not be well-versed in search and seizure law, you know, we hear these this technical terminology of Part 6 authorizations and things like that. We're essentially talking about wiretap authorizations. And um, I think the distinction that was being drawn out here because of, you know, things are changing, right? It was a time where police could once say, we need this part six authorization. We want to listen to Gerald and Sean talking about whatever they're talking about and conspiring. And now, uh, you know, when Jones and uh, Maraca come out, uh, there's, it's, the times have changed, right? We're looking at digital messages that in some instances are preserved. And, you know, essentially it seems uh, the police have access to that now and so you know from you know if if, if someone who wasn't a lawyer uh, was asking you what was Jones and Marka about what was at least for your argument's sake what was the issue that was 
that was uh, the court was struggling with. So, uh, I mean, I could talk about these cases forever. <laughs> it's uh, I find them so Episode fascinating. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, there are a couple issues uh, that Merrick and Jones raised. I mean, the, the the first one, the most basic one, was just you know really a question of standing. But it's when if if I send a, a text message to you and my message leaves my phone, arrives on your phone, do I have a continuing reasonable expectation of privacy in the message I've sent to you? And that matters for standing purposes because if the police unlawfully search your phone and find something bad that I've said and try to use it against me uh, in a trial, if I have a, a reasonable expectation of privacy still, then I have standing to complain about the unlawful search that they've made and challenge the constitutionality of it. Right. Um, so that's what was at, at issue in America. And the court uh, held that, yes, even, even when you send a text message to someone else, you can have a continuing expectation of privacy in that message uh, and one that is reasonable and one that will be recognized by uh, the Constitution. And I think. That, that's hugely important to Canadians because most of us these days, or at least certainly I, uh, text more than I talk on the phone. A lot of conversations that I used to have by voice on the phone, I now have over text message. And essentially what we're doing when we, when we communicate in this way, we may not think about it, but we are creating uh, transcripts of all of our conversations that we are then walking around with all the time in right. our phone, our devices, and there's an exact duplicate copy on the on the device of the person that we're talking to. Um, so the game has sort of changed in terms of the information that's available to the police. But at the end of the day, we're still we're still participating in the same fundamental act, which is a private communication. I'm still, you know, uh, conveying the same private thoughts to the person who I'm talking to as I would be if I were talking to them on the phone. And so I think that if the law is gonna evolve with technology and, and remain relevant and protect our privacy, then it should afford the same protections to uh, text communications that it once did to voice communications. And, you know, just to clarify things, because yeah, there's a lot of subtext to what this means. And, you know, listener, again, not familiar with the law, this, this in no way means that police don't can't have access to this information ever. Uh, you know, it's a, I think the argument here was you just shouldn't have a carte blanche. You shouldn't just be able to go to the provider and say, we want this stuff because of these reasonable expectations of privacy. That's right. And who can, who can complain about it? Like why should, you know, the, I think the crown in this case conceded that the recipient whose phone is being searched, well, they can complain about the unlawful search and seizure, right. but the person who sends the message can't complain about it. And I've always thought that, that that was sort of artificial because a text message is never just sent and it's like one message. A text message is part of an ongoing back and forth dynamic conversation uh, in which two people are equally involved. Right. And it always resides on two places. You can always get it from either the sender's phone or the recipient's phone. Right. Um, and so I don't think that it should matter where the, you know, whose device the police take it from. Because it depends a lot on the context in which it's happening. And you know, obviously there's a big difference between texting a friend or even someone who's quite intimate with you than posting something on Twitter because at least you're putting your mind to that. And, and uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the court goes into a pretty detailed analysis of some of the factors that can be assessed in determining when the sender is sending these things, do they actually have an expectation of privacy? That's right. Uh, and it, it, it's, you know, the, the, the whole totality of the circumstances analysis, you have to look at all of the factors. I think the court does draw a pretty clear distinction between sort of one-to-one private text conversations, if I'm sending you a text, whether it's SMS or, or Apple iMessaging, I mean, the platform shouldn't matter, but it's, it's the type of communication. So if a one-to-one -one communication is very different from, you know, going into a large public internet chat room or posting something on, on Twitter or on your Facebook feed that is visible to all of your friends on Facebook or followers on Twitter, that's a very different uh, communication that I think uh, does not attract anywhere near the same privacy protections. You know, and, and I think, you know, part of what I, when we look at those factors uh, and how much is taken into account, really it's infinite. I mean, the crown, the court will say, you know, just take it all into account and, and try and figure out where was their true reasonable expectation of privacy. Because, you know, again, if you send a text message saying, uh, hey, this is a big group chat among 15 friends, we're all going skiing next week. That's very different than I'm going to send an intimate picture to my partner uh, in that context. And, you know, on that, I, when I was, uh, when I, I read the decision, uh, the decisions, I should say, 
one of the things that was back in my head, even though it wasn't really explicitly alluded to, was the recent legislation relating to revenge porn and things like that. And how much do you think that factored into what was going on here and the reasonable expectation of people's privacy are? So it, the appellant, so appellant's counsel, uh, Mark Sandler, who fantastic lawyer that goes without saying, um, he, he made that argument was that, look, we, the legislation recognizes that there is a reasonable expectation of privacy even when you send something out of your phone. Um, you know, sexting being uh, the sort of the slash revenge porn being uh, the example of an area in which the legislature has recognized. It, just because you send something to someone else doesn't mean you've abandoned all expectations of privacy in it. Uh, I think that applies to sending intimate images just, to, just as it does apply to uh, having conversations about intimate subjects. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're texting with somebody else. Yeah, because it would seem a rather absurd argument for a defense lawyer to argue, well, sure, I shared this image, but they had no expectation of privacy because they sent it to me. And now yeah. the law explicitly forbids that. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I, I mean, just circling back to a point you made earlier, I think it, it is important for people to understand that this is, no one is saying the police should never have access to text messages. Um, the, the issue is simply whether uh, they, they should have to comply with Section 8 of the Charter in how they go about accessing those messages and then what that compliance actually means. So in Jones, uh, the second case, the big issue was, well, you know, everyone accepts that, you know, if the police want to wiretap a phone call, they need a wiretap authorization, which is almost like a super warrant. It's harder to get it than a regular search warrant. And by the time Jones was decided, the, everyone also accepted, because the Supreme Court decided this in TELUS, that if the police go to the court to ask the court to order TELUS to give them the text messages for, the, for a future period, for the next two weeks, let's say, um, then they also need a wiretap authorization. They also need a quote-unquote super warrant. The only question in Jones was, well, what if the police go to the uh, judge and say, okay, well, we don't want the text messages for the next two weeks. We want the text messages for the last two weeks. Right. So and your argument was, already exist. Your argument was this is pretty artificial distinction that we're drawing here between these things. Right. That that, that distinction really is only lies on when the police go seek judicial permission. The distinction doesn't affect the underlying investigative technique. Now, the majority dis disagreed with that position. <laughs> uh, Justice Abella dissented. And interestingly, Justice Rowe, because he was in that exchange, he sort of has this middle ground position where he agrees with the majority that he's not going to interpret part six this way. He, he Even though he's the one who he, asked it. That's what he, so, he, <laughs> so he sides with the majority and says, as a matter of statutory interpretation, um, you know, the wiretap authorization is only required for future text messages, not for pre-existing text messages. But then he adds a sentence saying, well, or adds a paragraph saying, now, this makes it pretty easy for the police to sidestep the requirements of the wiretap authorization because they just have to go to the judge an hour after, a few hours <laughs> right, after right. the text messages. And then he sort of says, but no one's challenged the legislation under Section 8 of the Charter. Right. So, so almost, do you see that coming at some point? It could with the right case. I mean, yeah. the, 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 the trouble with test cases, test case litigation in the criminal context is always you can win a fabulous victory under Section 8 of the Charter or some other provision. You can establish a charter breach and make new law. But for your clients, yeah. the evidence most likely is not going to be excluded if right. you're changing the law because the court's going to say, well, we can't fault the police. <laughs> right. So there's the a, lot of, a lot of Pyrrhic victories that right. happen. I and mean, it's so it's hard to, you know, you what do you say to the client? Look, <laughs> I, can, I can make new law and, and win this great decision for, right. the, for, ever, for the rest of the defense bar, but the evidence is still going in and, right. and you'll probably lose the case. You can congratulate them on their fame within Canadian criminal jurisprudence. That's right. You that's, know, that's yeah, I remember right. what we actually, uh, when I was at a firm many years ago, we had ran into, I won't say the name, but um, there was there was a particular client that was one of the most famous criminal cases. And, uh, you know, as articling students, we were in awe about this, thinking, hey, you're so-and-so of this case. And they just looked at us like, what are you talking about? I don't care. That's get right. me off my new charge. That's right. <laughs> to, to, to the legal world, you're a celebrity. Maybe. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, that's really interesting. So, and, you know, again, to drive this, this, this point home, I mean, using the wiretap authorization, if someone were to say on the phone, hey, you know, Gerald, I just killed this guy and I wasn't happened to 
you know, being wiretap at the time, it in no way prevents you from going to the police and saying, Sean just admitted to the murder. That's right. Right. And it's the same thing, it seems, with these text messages. I mean, I think what often gets lost in the headlines of these judgments is somehow a misinterpretation that this is going to be harder on police or anything like that. And it seems like what you're saying is this is just going to, uh, to the extent that's necessary, recognize that there's a reasonable expectation of privacy and there's consequences with that in seeking uh, authorizations. That's right. Any time the court is asked to recognize a reasonable expectation of privacy, all they're doing effectively is saying this is an area in which there should be constitutional oversight. Right. And that's, and that's it. There should be some judicial supervision of the area. So, you know, listening to all this and, you know, like watching that uh, question by Justice Rowe, like I start to sweat myself thinking I probably would have just clammed up and said, isn't it time for break? Um, (laughs) So how do you deal with this type of stress management? Like whether it's after, you know, litigation or just leading up to it, how do you get into the game? How do you stay in the game? And what do you do to come down from it afterwards so that these these types of stressors don't linger? I mean, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, the, the, definitely the first time I was in the Supreme Court of Canada, I don't think I slept at all the night before. I was so nervous um, and stressed out about the argument. So it does, some of it does come with time to be able to compartmentalize. Uh, and once you've done it a few times, you're less nervous in a bad way. I think it's always good to be nervous in a sense because you want to you wanna be geared up and you want to be on your game. Um, you know, everyone has different little habits, I think, that give them some comfort on the day of a trial or an appeal, an argument. Um, you know, if it's a, I, like, I like to get a fresh haircut just because I, you know, it's my thing. I feel like I think better when, when it's like the anti-Samson effect, right? I don't feel like all this hair is clouding my judgment. Um, so just, you know, little things like that that are kind of silly, but, but uh, uh, give you some additional level of comfort uh, in the morning. I like to get up early. On, I'm not a morning person at all. If I just have a day in the office, I, I will sleep in and stroll into the office at 9.30 or 10. But if it's a day, uh, if it's a trial day or, an, or a day in the Court of Appeal, the Supreme Court of Canada, I like to get up extra early because I need that time to review my notes before I go in. Um, I just have this fear in the back of my mind that I'm going to forget everything that I have prepared ahead of time and, and open my mouth and no words will come out. So it's little things I think you do to just give yourself that additional level of comfort in terms of getting into the game. Um, and, you know, I, taking that a little bit further, um, and this is a question that I think comes up for a lot of lawyers, not just directly by other people, but even for themselves, because we always have those cases that linger, right? Mm-hmm. Those cases that kind of haunt us. Uh, have you found, you know, certain ways to cope with that in saying, you know, I need to just let that go because, you know, someone, for example, goes to jail for a long period of time, maybe the rest of their life, or maybe you, you know, you think that, uh, oh, I should have, I should have asked that question or answered it this particular way. How do you move on from these cases? No, it's, I mean, it's, I struggled with that a lot. I still struggle with it, but I struggled with that a lot early on. I remember the first um, extradition case that that I lost uh, and so you know the client was sent to the US and where the sentences are just crazy um, I was feeling really terrible about it and Clay walked into my office one day and had to sit me down and say look you didn't create this problem uh-huh. you got to just remind yourself that you did the best you could um, but you know uh, Joe DeLuca said this to me one time actually we're not alchemists we're lawyers like we you know there's a limit to what we can reasonably do right. for our clients and so you do have to think sometimes remind yourself of that you know it's a fine balance because you do you do want to care um these are real people who are being affected and there are really serious consequences when you're talking about criminal law whether it's just whether it's a stigma of a criminal record or going to jail for a long time it's it's a really bad consequence and you do want to care and when you care it's going to hurt uh when you lose or when you know you can't secure a good outcome for your client so um so it's difficult Um, and then certainly Rethinking how you've run a case, I think, is something I still struggle with. Uh, it gives me some comfort to know that I think every lawyer does that. Right. Uh, there's this one great quote, Robert Jackson, Justice Robert Jackson, the U.S. Supreme Court, who was a fantastic uh, litigator, used to give, tell this one story about how after every argument uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court, he would, you know, well, he'd say there's only three arguments you make. There's the argument you've prepared, which is 
fabulously persuasive and cogent and clear. Yeah. There's the argument you deliver, which is all jumbled up and, <laughs> and uh, you know, you're stuttering through your answer to a question. And then the best argument of them all is the one you make when you go home and you're crying yourself to sleep at night and you make the argument that you should have made when you were on, right, your, it's like on the, your feeding court. The uh, lawyer's version of the jerk store from Seinfeld. Yeah. Right? yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, I should have asked that question. Exactly. So when you know that you know, the legends of the bar uh, have similar thoughts and regrets, um, then it makes it a little bit easier, I think, to yeah. move on to the next Well, case. I think a lot of people find that comforting, that they're not the only ones struggling with these issues. And even someone like yourself who puts in immense amounts of preparation and thought into these things is always going to have that uh, moment on the staircase later on to think, if only he had asked me this way or if only he had said this. Oh, yeah. If you could just slow down time and go back and fit in an extra question or, you know, fit in an extra answer to a question. Okay. Well, but, listen, I'll give you that time machine now. And it doesn't have to be your case, but if there was one Supreme Court of Canada case mm -hmm. that you look at and you think, I just wish for the sake of Canada or for my own interests right. or whatever, what is the one case that, you know, uh, Chief Justice Chan could re review and overturn tomorrow? So, so I definitely won't pick one of my cases because I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to send the wrong message. Um, Sinclair, I think. Yeah. Uh, and can you just tell us a little yeah, bit about so, Sinclair? So, so Sinclair is a criminal criminal case, Supreme Court of Canada, I don't know how many years ago now, but several years ago, uh, on the right to counsel. And a number of issues in that case, but one of the issues was, um, you know, someone is arrested, they're detained, taken into custody, uh, they say they want to talk to a lawyer, they get a phone call, they call their lawyer, uh, they get they, they hang up the phone, get sent back into the interrogation room, and the cops just start grilling them, and they want to make another phone call back to their lawyer to ask for further legal advice. Can they do that? And when can they do that? And a majority of the Supreme Court said, well, no, you don't get that as of right if circumstances have significantly changed such that you know your jeopardy has changed and uh, then there may be circumstances where you are constitutionally entitled to that an additional call to counsel but, but they're pretty narrowly restricted they're pretty narrowly restricted and it's certainly not a, a, a given that you're going to get a second call right. and so you really are limited to that initial call and whatever advice you're able to get from your lawyer or duty counsel as the case may be in that call and i it, you know, Justice Binney wrote a separate opinion in that case where he talked about Sinclair in the context of the Supreme Court's other cases. He called them the interrogation trilogy mm -hmm. and said collectively what these cases have done is they've turned the interrogation into sort of an endurance contest between the police and the uh, and the detainee or the, the person who's been arrested. And the police are always going to, or, or a lot of times, going to win that endurance contest. Of course. I mean, it's just it's, their resources are unlimited. Their right. stamina is virtually unlimited. I mean, you're in a strange place, uh, he, immense power disadvantage. They know a lot more than you do. They're allowed to lie to you. Right. Um, and that's what a lot of people don't know, right? I mean, that's sort yeah. of what's really troubling about it. So you see Sinclair as sort of the nail in the coffin to this trilogy where it just kind of shut down the arguments because there's some cases leading up to it, you know, Oikel, Singh, some of those. That that's right. It just makes it really, I think it makes it very difficult for an accused who's been arrested and is being interrogated by the police. Um, a, to, uh, to meaningfully exercise their right to counsel and the right to silence, which are important rights regardless of whether they're guilty or factually guilty or not. Right. Um, but then even beyond that, I think it's a, it's a big problem for wrongful convictions. I mean, false confessions, you know, the, I think empirically has been established as a, as a major contributor to wrongful convictions. And, um, you know, having someone in an interrogation room where they can't meaningfully exercise their right to silence or right to counsel uh, in situations that may demand it, I think, contributes to the problem of false confession. So it, it's it's not my favorite decision in the world. Right. And I, I'm curious, you know, this may be uh, a premonition of, of things to come in decades down the road where we look back and say how many wrongful convictions resulted in people confessing wrongly for things that they they didn't do and that's you know it's hard for i think uh, the public to understand that why would anyone confess to a murder or crime that they didn't commit but you know when you really look at the context of things that are happening in these decisions where interrogations will last you know 12 hours at times with under very dire circumstances with limited access to a lawyer um we i wonder how many of any of us 
even the strongest of us would be able to sustain that with these sophisticated methodologies employed as well. Sure, sure. I mean, related to that, the one the one case I am glad about is is uh, the Hart case, where the Mr. Big operation at least was finally um, smacked down a little bit by the Supreme Court of Canada. And, uh, yeah, but you still see it being used, um, just yeah. with with tighter constraints and. That's yeah. right. No, it, I mean, it's it ultimately, you know, the problem of false confessions is one that, uh, uh, you know, continues to plague not just our criminal justice system, but criminal justice systems around the world. So are you going to do a hip hop battle for us? Are you going to, are you going to, uh, you're not battling me because <laughs> I cannot perform like this at all, but uh, do you got a riff for us? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, I was thinking about that on the way over, you know, I, I I'll give it a shot. It's been it's been at least almost a decade since I've I've been in the. I'll game, give you so. a very limited time for your intervener status, like ten seconds. Yeah, I, I, I may not have have more to say than ten seconds. If I was still a battle rapper, I would say I bring y'all danger and sit them up here at King Law Chambers. You got a nice setup, got a nice microphone. I like the zone out here. It's like it's home. And so, if you've had a bad day in court, hanging with a scoundrel, then just go home and listen to the podcast of counsel. All right. Well, I really don't think any podcast will end better than that. So, thank you so much, uh, Gerald, for coming and giving uh, uh, all this advice and tips for uh, lawyers listening to. I have no doubt that this is going to be one of our most popular podcasts. So, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me.